Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> For our scripture today, I'd like to look at 2 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> and then try to wrap up this several Sundays on general eschatology, which is last the doctrine of last things as far as the unfolding of the events that will bring about the conclusion of history. The Bible tells us something about it. Much of it is cloudy. I personally think that's on purpose um, because God continues to warn us and exhort us, be ready, be ready, for you do not know what time I will return and wrap up this world and carry out judgment which will determine where each of us spends eternity. And the fact that this warning of imminence, suddenness, finality, unpredictableness, it would be contradicted, really, if, if God in the scripture then gave us this minute timeline so that we could predict it perfectly. Um, and I don't have to know all the reasoning of God, but... Um, the fact that end times is important enough in the Bible that Jesus spoke about it, the apostles spoke about it, the Old Testament prophets looked forward and spoke about it, means it is important. But the fact that God did not specify clearly enough that we have, in spite of all the people who make all the charts, God didn't make a chart. He left it fuzzy enough that we that he said no one knows the day or the hour therefore while it's important because he mentioned it it isn't ultimate it, of ultimate importance there are things more important that of course is being ready not again to cut from underneath my feet the reason for spending time on end times but <clears throat> I don't know the percentage. It's got to be 99.9% .9 of all the people who've ever lived since Adam and Eve will be ushered into the presence of God by death, not by the second coming. Obviously, it's only going to be some group that's alive on the earth that will experience sec the second coming. So it is a minuscule amount of people that will be ushered into the presence of God by the second coming. More importantly then, is that I be ready to live or die because that will usher me into God's presence and judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, after that the judgment. Now, Paul had some things to say about the end times and so does Peter. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
<clears throat> we'll read that chapter. It has just 18 verses. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they say this or maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which water, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth. In other words, the earth at the time of the flood was gone, destroyed, to the point that this is a different earth and heavens from that earth and heavens. This one, he said, <clears throat> is being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let, you know, I'm going to stop here just for a second, even though I went over eight minutes this morning, and the I mentioned in this morning's service that we'll be talking about the tribulation today. The nursery people experienced the tribulation today because I went over. Interesting to me that God, in judging a sinful, godless world, did so by water and will so by fire. John the Baptist came, he said, I baptize with water for the remission of sins. But there's one coming after me, he will baptize you with fire. This is God's method of dealing with the whole sin problem. Water for the washing of forgiveness, fire for the purging of sinfulness in the heart. So there's, there's a parallel here. Anyway. Eight, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day, which is not a mathematical formula that Peter gave us to figure out end times. Everybody says, ah, a day is like a thousand years. So when Daniel says there will be 1,290 days of such and such, then people ask 1,290 years, has to be, because a thousand years is a day or whatever. This is just a figure of speech. It just means a really long time. And that God does not live in time. Time itself. Time and space are creations of God. He created them at the creation for us to live in. But he doesn't live in space and time. Nothing. The heavens of the heavens cannot contain God. Second, he's in an eternal present. God doesn't think only when he deals with us does he condescend to our level to talk in terms of time, space, years. Those are created things themselves. And he said that when he returns, time shall be no more. So this is not a formula for figuring out end times prophecy. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There's that unpredictability again. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, <clears throat> just a fast note as we read that. Everything that Peter said, plus everything that Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, and said to the Thessalonians, there is no hint in all those of long, age-long, drawn-out, last-times events and epochs. Twice here, Peter says, the coming of the Lord will be with destruction of the whole earth. It seems immediately, he says it'd be like a thief in the night. Paul told the Thessalonians that he will come with no warning. It says, with his angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on the wicked. It doesn't seem that there's a whole bunch of events and a long stretch of time. Okay? Now, <clears throat> I told the 8 o'clock or 8.30 service, same thing I'll tell you. I hope this isn't just a total mess, but I think it's, it's highly possible that this could dis devolve into a mess, okay? Um, so, who knows? Because I want to try to wrap up much of what we've been talking about and come to some kind of conclusion, at least what I think um, is ultimate truth. Okay, so I will be telling you today different theories of end times, but then I will conclude with the gospel truth, which is my opinion, which we know will happen. Okay, so <clears throat> I mentioned when we started this whole thing that there are lots of differences of opinion, and the vast majority of those differences of, of opinion are maybe worth having, worth discussing, uh, debating the huge amount of differences of the doctrine of end times are not worth um, condemning one another over. However, and I don't want to renege on that statement that we can all get along, there's some theories that have enough error 
to my opinion, in them, that we do need to not believe them. I don't know that that error will cost the people that believe that their souls. I don't think so. But I still think that there are some serious errors in some of the theories that we'll look at. There are basically three, um, currently, there are basically three different theories on end times with a fourth theory that kind of bridges some of those three. So technically there's four, but at any rate, you see why I said this could be a mess. They're all um, named around the word millennium, which means thousand. It's a period of time briefly, barely mentioned in scripture, which I take to be totally figurative and not literal, but some do take it literally, that there will be a 1,000-year reign of the personal presence of Jesus on earth that he will control everything for a full 1,000 years. Now, some say maybe not a 1,000. It's figurative, but it means a long time. So whether we say literal 1,000 or a really long time, that's what goes under the name millennium. And there are three, um, at least three theories we'll start with. They have to do with when, before, or after the second coming is. Pre-millennialism states that Jesus will return for the purpose of setting up his 1,000-year kingdom reign on earth. So pre-millennialists believe Jesus will return again, and he will at that point rapture the church, raise the dead Christians, and together we'll meet in the air, and we will reign with him on earth as he establishes this 1,000-year reign and at the end of that thousand-year reign will be a brief time of rebellion, even though people have been under perfect rule for a thousand years. They will still, when given the chance, they will, Satan's been bound in the meantime, and he'll be loosed for a short period. He will deceive the nations. They will rise in rebellion against God, even though they've experienced perfect government. Jesus will destroy them. It says with fire that proceeds out of his mouth. That'll be the end of it. You have final judgment and you have heaven and you have hell for eternity. Okay? That is what's called historic premillennial. Okay? Um, and I know you'll want to memorize this. There's more premillennialism coming in, a, in that fourth theory that bridges some that decorates it up a lot. But that's historic pre-millennialism. A few, there's some really vague hints towards this theory in the ancient church, in the early church. The thought was that maybe after a generation, just a generation, um, Jesus will return. He will defeat all these people, the Jews and the Romans, who are persecuting us. And he will rule on earth and set up his kingdom. Um, 
and that's about all they thought. This then would some ways hearken back to that. And there are people today who are pre-millennialists. Okay? Second, there is another theory called post-millennialism. Post obviously means that Jesus returns after the rule of his kingdom. What is that? Well, it's not a literal thousand years because we don't know for sure when it begins. Okay, But the theory is for a really long time, now 2,000 years, the kingdom of Jesus on earth in individual hearts by the spread of the gospel will grow, 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 grow until the whole earth is essentially, not down to the last man and woman, but essentially Christianized, converted. And so we will have, in a sense, less and less wickedness. Okay? That theory, like a lot of these theories, and this is what we have to be careful with, a lot of the theories about end times and a lot of some other doctrines are cooked up by people who are immersed in circumstances in their current lives, in their current country and current culture that make them interpret the Bible this way or that way. We have to be careful. We can't help but live in the day we live. And that's the lens through which we look at the world. It's hard not to, but we have to remember the Bible is written for the ages. One of the things that some of these theories maintains, it's a kind of an underlying assumption, is that everything in the end times is yet to be. It hasn't happened yet, so we're looking for it. I don't even believe that. A huge amount of things that are prophesied have already happened. So we can't pretend that nothing of a prophetic is still out ahead. Much of it's already happened. Even Jesus, when he spoke, and he clearly said, if you're in Judea and you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, flee. Well, has that already happened? Yeah. 70 AD. 70 AD, they utterly destroyed the Roman general Titus. Came in 68 AD besieged Jerusalem for two years, starved them to death. It's estimated, and you, you know, nobody knows for sure, but it's estimated to upwards to a million Jews perished in that. And Jerusalem and the temple were taken to the ground. And the Jews were dispersed in 70 AD, never to be reassembled on that land previously theirs, until 1948. That's already happened. So when Jesus said destruction's coming, tribulation's coming, and that's going to be a horrible time that people have never gone through before, but I've shortened it. It's already happened. We have to be careful then, even on that sense, that we aren't looking, everything's out ahead yet. Not a lot of it's already fulfilled. Post-millennials believe then, as I said, 
an increasing victory of sin in, or of righteousness against sin in human hearts will so Christianize the world that that will then prepare Jesus to come to the earth and it will be automatic that he will assume control of this virtually Christianized world and kingdom already. Okay? Now, there you can find pre-millennialists around. Um, you, if you offered a $2 million reward, you can't find a post-millennialist anymore. There were tons of them in the 1700s, the 1800s, and then they died out. Why? Because the 1700s and the 1800s were times of unparalleled revival. You have the literal global Methodist revival under the Wesley brothers in England, spread to America, all through the English-speaking world, and then through all of Western civilization. There's not a place today, even in, I hate to say it, I'm not getting off the subject, but in their decayed liberal state, there isn't, there isn't any place, any country in this world, hardly, where you can't find a Methodist church. It was global, and especially in America, there were the outbreak of what they, the camp meeting movement when an agrarian society that didn't have anything to do after planting much and harvest. And so you'd go to a grove of trees and you'd put a you know, covered wagon or a tent or do something and um, you'd, they'd preach all day and people got saved. And it was a nation-altering time. If you are in the 1700s and the 1800s where there are huge revivals going on, it's pretty easy to believe in post-millennialism. The kingdom is going to win. But World War I, World War II, the 20th century, ended up curing post-millennialism. Uh, nobody today believes that Christianity is winning. And the world is pushing sin to the boundaries. Nobody believes that. So that's a theory that time itself put to death. Okay? Now, there's one more theory. Of, I guess you'd say official theory. And it's called awe millennialism, which is not a good name for it. It means no millennium, no thousand-year reign. Though awe millennialists believe in a thousand-year reign, but just not in the future. I'll get to that in a second. But in the meantime, about 150 years ago, another theory came into um, the scene. And this one is called dispensationalism. It is somewhat pre-millennialist, um, but it's far, far, far more complex and more involved, and it is one that has, I believe, some serious flaws, serious biblical errors. I'm not saying that if you believe in dispensationalism that it's such a heresy that it denies Christ or something like that, and that you, you can't be a Christian and believe that theory. I just know this for a fact. This is certain. This I have on authority. 
from God himself, all dispensationalists who end up in heaven will be taken into a separate kind of a re-education camp before they're turned loose on the general population to correct them, okay? But, <clears throat> so we're not damning people, but dispensationalism took hold in, it specifically, 1849. Let me just say this. Something that has never been heard of, in spite of some of their current present-day arguments, oh yes, early church believe there is no evidence, none, in the early church that anybody believed in dispensationalism. Dispensationalism was unheard of until 1849 by a guy named John Darby. If it is new, it's not true. If it's true, it isn't new. If this is such a burst of truth as it's claimed to be, I don't know what the Holy Spirit was doing until 1849 to finally educate all of us. The word dispensation does not mean one of its meanings for a dispensation is a temporary exemption from rules uh, or law. So-and-so is granted a dispensation. means for extenuating circumstances, we won't hold them accountable for, bre for breaking this rule. Okay? The other meaning for dispensation is um, a specific period of time. Usually long, but not necessarily long. But it's a special period of time. Dispensationalists teach, um, and, and I will tell you this, dispensationalism, I'm going to just protect, uh, project. Dispensationalism is probably, within small e, evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christianity. I would say it's probably, number one, held opinion. That doesn't make it right, but it's widely held, or bits of it. And most people... Now, there are a lot of people that believe bits of it, hardly recognizing that, in a sense, you can't believe bits of it. You have to believe the whole theory, but they don't. Um, it's a pretty complex thing. I'll try to do my best here. Um, it teaches that there are, from creation, there are seven eras, epochs, ages, dispensation. In each of those dispensations, God worked with humanity in certain ways that ultimately humanity failed to follow through on. And so in the succeeding dispensation, God's, he never really changed, changed in the sense that you got to love God and trust him. So those stayed the same. But the surface methods in which he dealt with humanity, there were seven or there's been six so far successive dispensations in which God has worked in a certain way with humanity. And every one of those dispensations ended in failure, not the failure of God, but the refusal of mankind to live by those rules. So God judged that dispensation and ended them and then shifted to a new method, which also failed and so forth. Okay. <clears throat> now, let me quickly give you the, the different dispensations. Dispensation 1, called Dispensation of Innocence, from creation of Adam and Eve to the fall in the garden. 
Now that could have been a week, literally. We don't know. God made the garden, billions, millions, I don't know, thousands of trees to eat, so forth. Put one tree as a test for them, for their will. He said, don't eat of that one. It's the tree of knowledge and good and evil. You don't know about evil. You've never experienced it. You don't know it. And he couldn't make us with a free will without giving us a genuine test to our free will. If you have free will, but you have no opportunity to exercise it, it's not free will. So he made the lowest threshold possible to continue to will, to choose to love God. Real fast, God created us in what's called primitive righteousness. It's a created righteousness. But he gave us a free will, and that primitive righteousness had to become what's called ethical righteousness by my choice. I choose to continue in the righteousness God made Adam and Eve in, and thus it becomes ethical righteousness. It couldn't become ethical. They couldn't exercise their free will if God didn't give them some test for their will. So he made it a simple one. He gave them 100 million trees and says, you can eat everything off of them, just leave that one alone. Well, the serpent came and told, he said, if you eat of it, you'll die. The serpent came and told Adam and Eve, um, God's not, didn't mean it, he's lying, and if you eat of that, it won't hurt you at all. In fact, it'll make you better. You'll know, you'll know good and evil like God does, and you'll be wiser than you are right now. And so that you will be enhanced if you disobey God, not debased. They bought it, we know the story, okay? That was dispensation one, called innocence, where they lost it. Two, dispensation two goes from the fall clear to Noah. That's called the dispensation of conscience, where there was no written law yet, but the Holy Spirit, in however he did, instructed people's hearts and consciences how to live. He gave them some instructions because Abel and Cain knew about sacrifices and all that. But that's num uh, dispensation two. Dispensation three is after the flood, from Noah to Abraham. And that's about 1,000 years, 1,500 years. The first one, the uh, fall to Noah, is about 2,500 years. <clears throat> this third dispensation from Noah to Abraham is the rise through God, which I see, of civil government, which you have to have government, will be governed I think it was George Washington, will be governed by God or will be governed by tyrants. The human heart is ungovernable, so it has to be governed, okay, externally. And so civil government developed to a better scale. You have, after the, God gave some basic laws, death penalty, Noah's getting off the ark. If, if an animal kills a human, you kill the animal. If a human kills a human, because a human, he says, because that human's made in the image and likeness of God, it's such a heinous thing to do. You take the life of that other human that took that life. People say, today, the death penalty diminishes life. No, it doesn't. It establishes it. It says it's such a value that you take one, you forfeit yours. That's the Noahic called covenant. Anyway, that is dispensation three. With, Ad, with Abraham, 
you start dispensation four, which is the selection of the Jews as a nation, the creation of the Jews as a nation, through whom Jesus would come as the Messiah for all the earth. Okay? To undo or to, to unfold that plan, you have to have a race, a human race, through whom the Messiah would come if God was going to become incarnate in flesh. Yes, that's some way to, to get here. Okay? So from Abraham clear to Moses was the selection of Israel, the promises, all the promises to Abraham of the coming Messiah coming through him. He said, in you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. A prophecy of Jesus coming. And that the race of Abraham would be the vehicle through which Jesus comes. That is the fourth dispensation. It stretched to Moses. Moses brings the people of uh, Israel out of Egypt, and Israel is really, I guess you'd say, established, uh, organized as a nation, and given three laws, moral law, the Ten Commandments. Two, ceremonial law, all of the sacrificial system, the clean and unclean animals, the things you can eat, things you can't eat, all that stuff. The temple or tabernacle worship, and then third, civil law. Now, the moral law has never been done away with. We're just as much under the Ten Commandments today as the day God wrote it in his finger in tablets of stone. Civil law, most of it, we still, Western civilization is based on it. So much of civil law in Israel, the principles underlie everything we know about judicial uh, and legal law. Third, ceremonial, all of those foreshadowed and were illustrations of Christ's coming. And when he came and died, not a lamb, not a goat, a bullock, but the Son of God, he fulfilled all of those sacrificial laws, uncleanness laws, and so forth. And being fulfilled, they're no longer binding on us. So that's gone. People say, well, we're under the, we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. No, I'm under moral law. Grace helps me keep moral law. Civil law is reasonable and we're supposed to obey it. I'm just not under ceremonial law, which was a, we sang it this morning. I noticed in one of the verses that we're, we're saved, we're redeemed by grace, not by merit. The Old Testament system was, in a sense, on the surface, merit. I did this, did this, did this, did this, therefore I'm okay. That was for a time. But now he, God said, I'm not going to write the law anymore on a rock. I'm going to write it in your heart so that you, you perform it because you love God. And it from here. So... That's called number five, dispensation five, of law. That leads to Christ. Moses to Christ is number five. Christ, of course, you have the virgin birth, the incarnation, the ministry, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension into heaven. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the sending forth of the gospel to the entire world. 
That is dispensation six. We're in that now. Okay? According to the dispensationalists. It's called the age of grace or the church age. There, there remains one more dispensation. That's called the kingdom age. Now, so far, every, nothing looks too off here, in a sense. Um, I, I would say this. Biblically, and again, this doesn't mean if you believe in seven dispensations, you're going to hell. Um, but there's really two. That's why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And what's called an Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Two. The Mosaic Law, which foreshadowed Jesus, and now Jesus is here, and that's passed away. That's a whole lot simpler. And I think more biblically accurate. But at any rate. <clears throat> the next seventh remains. <clears throat> the seventh dispensation is set to begin at the rapture, at the second coming. Christ will return. He will gather in the rapture. It will be sudden, unpredictable. He'll gather up the living Christians and resurrect the dead Christians. We will be caught up in the air to meet him in the air as he descends to establish, begin to establish his kingdom. Okay? So far, you think, oh, okay, I, I'm hanging in there. <clears throat> Here's where it gets, I think, very erroneous. Again, don't believe it damns a person's soul, but I think it is totally unbiblical, and it can frankly be nutty. That's not a theological term, but it's, it's nutty. The church, here's one of the fundamental beliefs of dispensationalism. They believe, and I must say this, you've got to get clear to the roots. You've got to get clear down to the foundation underneath the crawl space to find out why certain things are believed up here on second story level. You don't know it sometimes until you get to the crawl space, okay? The crawl space of dispensationalism is Calvinism, old kind of Calvinism. Calvinism, the sovereignty of God, is everything. You cannot have a God who will allow truly the exercise of free will and make his salvation, his promises, and so forth, conditioned upon human cooperation. You can't do that because that robs him of his sovereignty. Without getting off onto this, it's a theory of salvation called monergism. It means only God operates. You and I do not cooperate. Even if we do cooperate, we think we're cooperating on our own will, we're not. He determined it. Okay? So when he said, I put before you a choice, Blessing, cursing, life, death. Choose life. He'll really, I guess, choose for you because he didn't really mean that. Now, I know it's simplistic, and I know, I know Reformed theologians would be running the aisles right now. But the bottom line is, it doesn't make any sense. Synergism, S-Y-N, is the Bible doctrine of salvation. It's divine human cooperation. God gives everyone the chance to repent, but those who will not and 
Let me throw this in quickly. The idea, it, it, this whole thing rests on predestination. God chose, and I don't know the percentage, but we can just pick. I can look around here and I can see every one of you. There's some of you that, that I, they're really nice, and I'm sure that God predestined you to be saved. There's some of you that I know good and well he didn't predestinate you because the way you, you know, you drive us nuts. So you must be one of the reprobates, the unchosen, unpredestined ones, okay? We don't know the number, and you don't know whether you're one of the predestined to go to heaven or not. But it doesn't matter because you can't do anything about it. And if you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go. You're going to get saved whether you do want to or not. You'll get saved. It's irresistible. And once you're saved, you can't ever fall away because it's irresistible. And that's the basis of dispensationalism. That's the crawl space. That's one of the reasons I don't like it. Okay? But they transfer that predestination, sovereignty, unconditional con contract, unconditional covenant. To Israel, God made promises to Abraham regarding his offspring, the ethnic DNA Jews. He will keep them. Those contracts and covenants are not breakable. Even though God said, you broke my covenant, I'm throwing it away. I don't want to do with that. Nevertheless, they're unbreakable and they're unconditional. It will happen whether Israel cooperates or not. Therefore, there is, totally unbiblically, there is a complete separation between Israel and the church. Generally, we believe the church of Christ is Israel in spiritual form, no longer the physical nation, but now we're all, as Paul said, we're all the Israel of God. And he said, we're the true Jews. Okay? Paul said, if you believe in Christ, you are the children of Abraham. We're Jews in the spiritual sense because God isn't paying attention to the literal DNA sense anymore. But dispensationalists do. Therefore, the church, and you're not going to believe this, and I'm not overstating this. I'm getting it from their literature. The church is not God's intended kingdom. It's still the Jews. But to, as a temporary dispensation, we have the church age. He will rapture the church out so that and by the way, he will rapture the church out. And this is a huge, 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 huge deal. The church will be raptured before any tribulation occurs. Pre-tribulation rapture is a, it is a cornerstone doctrine. The church will not go through tribulation. But hear me, to a true dispensationalist, it's not because... God wants to spare us the trouble. I'm not making this up, so go look it for yourself. He's getting the church out of the way, which, by the way, has nothing to do with Israel, nothing to do with Jewishism, so that the tribulation will be poured out on the Jews. Now, 
Go read it for yourself. The tribulation is not for the church. There's where you get the Hal Lindsey, the, you know, the driverless cars on Interstate 90 and all this balderdash. All of this stuff is we got to get God has to get the church out of the road. So his real purpose of keeping his really old promises to Israel as a DNA nation can now be fulfilled. And what he will do, the last time God had an interaction with the Jews was they killed his son. Okay? So the church is going to be removed and the tribulation will be poured out on the Jews up to two-thirds. Where anybody gets that, I don't know. But that's the prediction. Two-thirds of today, or if Jesus were to come tomorrow, the tribulation would start, and two-thirds of the DNA, actual Jewish DNA race, would be slaughtered in judgment. This will induce them to convert. Okay? This will make them convert. 144,000 of them will become evangelists to the world. And then... I'm not done yet. The Temple Mount in Jerusalem will be retaken. The mosque will be removed. A third temple, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, and there's really four because Herod's was an add-on. The fourth temple will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I make, please look it up yourself. The temple will be rebuilt to its original pattern on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And all the animal sacrifices and the laws will be reestablished. So after, and I'm again, one last time because i got to quit. Go check it out for yourself. It is ridiculous. After Jesus shed his blood in Jerusalem, for the whole world, God's so obsessed with these unconditional sovereign promises that he's going to rebuild the temple and restore slitting the throats of lambs and goats and sprinkling blood on you when Jesus fulfilled that and then God took care of the temple worship in 70 AD by cutting it to the ground. That is nuts. Okay? Now, even saying that, I think that's why if you're a dispensationalist, you can go to heaven, but you will be in a re-education camp for a while. I hope you can see why we need a re-education camp. Okay? During the tribulation, by the way, when the church is gone, a bunch of Jews will get saved and a whole bunch of Gentiles will get saved who woke up and realized, boy, all those driverless cars out on, you know, Interstate 90, I must have missed it. Thank goodness I got a second chance. They'll get saved. Jews will get saved. And then Jesus will return again to set up his thousand-year reign. Okay? Now, basically, all I can say is, 
I don't believe any of that. Okay? One more time. If it's new, it's not true. I don't know what in the world God was doing until 1849 that he withheld this storehouse of knowledge from us. Okay? But that's very prominent today. And so many people who don't have any idea of the underpinnings of this, I hear it all the time. People will say to me, I mean, literally, I'll run into people from church or other churches at Perkins or whatever. Well, I tell you what, but the things going on with Israel, I, the times are, it's the end times, ain't it? No. God, and I know I went over this morning and I, it's in the first service, still not as bad as it is. I'm Irish Welsh, okay? I'm not, I am not a Messianic Welsh. You understand? A, me, uh, a Messianic, I, I, don't, I don't pay attention to and it bugs me. This, I'm a Messianic Jew. Listen, you're a Christian or you're a Hellion. That's it. God doesn't have a, in spiritual sense, a chosen people anymore. We're it. Every dear believer across the face of this earth who loves Jesus and lives for Jesus and trusts in him and knows he's the savior of the world, that's God's people. The, the, we're the Israel of God. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, he said the churches, he said, you, you say you're Jews, but you're not. You're of the synagogue of Satan. He's not talking about, and remember John the Baptist. When John the Baptist said, believe on the one that's coming after me, they said, we're Abraham's children. He said, God can raise up seed to Abraham from the rocks. He doesn't pay attention to the DNA of a race anymore. Now, I have to quit in one minute. The last theory is amillennial, which is a misnomer. That's what I am. Okay? If you want to go to heaven, I'm joking. We're in the millennium. The binding of Satan isn't going to happen after the tribulation or, you know, whatever. The binding of Satan happened the day Jesus came out of the tomb with the keys of death and hell. Satan has been bound, meaning restricted, not completely neutered. He's at work, but he's limited. Jesus destroyed hell. The door is hanging open because Jesus has the key to it. And the key to death. He's removed the sting from death and the power of death that Satan troubled all with. So, is there a millennium? Yeah. Is there a binding of Satan? Yeah. It happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And we live today. The millennium is today. The, the ruling of Jesus on earth and the binding of Satan, we're in the millennium and in the binding of Satan right now. Old-time guys like Martin Luther taught that. I believe it. makes perfect sense. We will all go through tribulation because Jesus said so. The idea that we're going to be raptured out and we won't have to go through tri tribulation is a contradiction to Jesus. We'll go through it and there aren't any second chances. There's no hint anywhere in the Bible of an opportunity to get saved after the return. 
So that end times, I think end times, can't prove this, but I think it'll end times will probably, for the trump to sound and time to be no more will take about three seconds. The second coming will occur. Jesus will return with no warning. We'll be in the middle of whatever we're doing and and the dead will rise. They'll be gathered before. The judgment will take place. That's it. I think that's real simple. It's real quick. Fits my personality. Um, and it's over with. I think that all of this other stuff is a distraction. Because what did Peter say? He said, I need to tell you about this. The earth's going to be burned up. It's going to be bad. Paul said, God will return with his angels to flaming fire, destroy the wicked. There's no hint of long spaces. It's just bam. But what did Peter say? Be sure that you live holy, blameless, and keep growing in grace. That's what matters. What theory happens to end up won't matter if we're not ready or if we are ready. We'll be fine. So there's some bad ideas we need to avoid, especially reestablishing Jewish sacrifices in Jerusalem. But in the end, tuck it away in the back of our heads, but live for Jesus every day. You ready? John Wesley used to say to the Methodists, you should be ready to witness for your faith, pray or die in a moment's notice. That's how we should live. Well, as I said the same thing earlier, the nursery people are going through the tribulation right now. So we got to quit. Dan, come and pray. I forgot to mention, too, I'm thinking about a question and answer Sunday if on all this couple of Sundays down the road if anybody wants to do it. Shoot me emails. I'm not going to do it. If we show up, just say, if you got questions, and everybody just sits here. Um, but if you got questions, it's worth taking a Sunday to kick it around. So, but email them to me and then we'll see. Let's pray quick. <laughs> Father in heaven, you're good. And we are grateful. And through all the information that was shared with us today, Lord, help us to go dig into your word to find the truth, um, that we were taught this morning. Help us to be like the Bereans and just burden us with these things, Lord, because it is, it's important to know, but it's not the critical part is this, that we know you and that we are ready. So may we be a church of one book, and that's the Bible, and may we also be a church that is living holy, blameless, and growing in grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.